In this series, we interview game changers from around the globe about digital ethics, online activism and social media. We get to know them, their stories and how they have harnessed one of the greatest phenomenons of our time. A little warning, most of our episodes are for adult ears only with frequent droppage of the F-bomb. I'm Roisin Bevan. And I'm Daisy Grant. And this is Harness. I have to do something. So I went on social media and I put the report that he sent me on Instagram and I said, see, I don't know what to fucking do. She's three years old. She can't go to this other courthouse. What am I meant to do? This episode of Harness is with Sarah Rosborg, co-founder and CEO of Rafiki Muema. Rafiki is a charity based in Kenya, which provide refuge and support to children who have been sexually abused. We want to warn you that we do go into detail about the suffering these children have experienced, so please be mindful when listening. If this stirs up any distressing feelings for you, please see the show notes for places to seek support local to you. Since starting in 2011, Rafiki has been instrumental in the imprisonment of over 80 child rapists. For the children who come through their doors, Rafiki provide a safe and empathetic environment, medical attention, education, therapy and support through the legal system, which often includes gruelling trials. In Kenya, accused rapists can interrogate their victims face-to-face in open court. Just think about that for a second. Children interrogated by their abusers who are more often than not someone they know very well. We talk more about this with Sarah and how she's raised funds to buy video link technology to avoid this trauma for the children of Rafiki. The charity started with a woman called Anne-Marie Tipper. In 2011, Anne-Marie set up a therapeutic home for sexually abused girls under the age of 12 in Nakuru, Kenya. Within one week of opening the house, it was full and has been ever since. After a year, though, they'd run out of money and were in desperate need of help. Help came in the form of a black-haired, tattooed Aussie metalhead with the softest heart you'll ever meet, Sarah Rosborg. Sarah worked her butt off to raise the money to keep the charity alive and still does. She says she sleeps four to five hours a night on a good day and understandably finds it very difficult to switch off. Sarah is an incredible mix. She's vulnerable and fragile, yet simultaneously one of the strongest, most impressive women we've ever met. She sees an incredibly dark side of life and she feels every bit of it. She's desperate to protect children from harm. She doesn't have time for bullshit or small talk. She's incredibly honest, whether that's about her personal battles or the learning curves of the charity. The reason we wanted to talk to her is to find out more about her, her work, but also because of the way she interacts with social media and influencers. She attributes social media to much of the charity's success and uses it to raise awareness and, crucially, funding. Her biggest ambassadors are comedian Celeste Barber and blogger Constance Hall, both of which have a huge following online, which, by the way, you should follow. Rafiki now have four therapeutic houses that are home to 70 children, two girls' houses and two boys' houses, as well as 120 children who have left their care and returned to a safe family member in their community, still under the watchful eye of Rafiki Moema's outreach team. We want to say a huge thank you to Anne-Marie and her son Peter, who attended our launch event back in June. I think you will be bowled over by the work of the charity after hearing this. We were, and of course, 
you'll fall in love with Sarah. We did. Here she is. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Hello. Firstly, this this is Roisin. Big fat apology. I'm at dick brain and I thought that you were on Australian Eastern Standard Time, which is why we're calling late. We thought we were ahead of schedule and we've actually Yeah, made- and I was just saying that to my mate here um, who's saying, and I'm like, I, I said, I bet you they think that I'm in Queensland. And I I'm- probably said, I probably didn't... Um, you probably said AEST and I probably just went, yep, but I'm in New South Wales and I always thought oh, I'm on no. Australian Eastern Standard Time, but I'm in New South Wales. So I knew that that's what was happening. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm no, no so problem. sorry. As long as you know that I'm an extra two drinks in. Oh, stunning. Oh, st- Sarah. Okay. You are what we want. Yes. You are a woman oh, after our own heart. <laughs> <laughs> we're, just, we're just. Yeah, but it's nine o'clock in the morning for you. Yeah, we've started though. Oh, we're ready. We're on oh. it. Okay, girls, <laughs> let's go. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm exhausted after New Zealand and this is the second or third night back at home and yeah. today my, my pain is kicking into my hips and my knees and mm. I'm feeling the pain of trekking stupid fucking mountains for nine days. And, wow. Um, I, yeah, I'm three JDs in, two wines and one beer. Uh, brilliant. Can you tell us, <laughs> can you, um, for people listening, can you tell them what um, the trip to New Zealand was was for and uh, how long you were away and, and um, tell us a little bit about your experience? Yeah, so it was um, it was called Trek for My Rafiki, which is Trek for My Friend, um, and it was set up by a company called Inspired Adventures, um, which is like, you know, you do a fundraising trek for a cause where you say, I'm going to climb this mountain, please, friends, give me this money. And it was for trekking in New Zealand mountains for nine days. It was called a moderate trek. I've never walked in my life, even before I had a car accident and I had injuries, I had never walked. So I thought moderate trek sounds like, oh, I'll just be walking flat for a few kilometres. And it wasn't. It was uphill for eight days, up and hill, and then down back down the same hill, which makes no sense to me, and then um, doing it again for eight days. But it was amazing. I met some wonderful people, 13 people who – all had to raise $3,500 for Rafiki Mwera. They enjoy this type of thing. They paid to come, so that was amazing. But they all raised $3,500 for us and they were interested. Jimmy and I were both on the trek and, you know, I was able to answer all their questions about Rafiki Mwera. I mean, it was absolute hell on earth nightmare trekking. If that is moderate, you know, if, if we think of it, people who do this professionally are like at high, oh. it moderate still is fucking hard and extreme and did you say that you had been in a car accident yeah well the car accident was about 12 years ago so then I broke my hip and my femur and my foot and my back so you know I've just got arthritis and a lot of back pain and I suffer from chronic pain now so I just I'm known to not be very active and I'm known to just work work all the time understandably yeah yeah and I don't go out in nature and I find nothing exciting in nature so when I told everyone I was doing this trek in New Zealand you know, for nine days, they're like, no, you're not. I'm like, yeah, no, I am. And they're like, no, you're not. And even now my friends came over and laughed all night about the fact that I did it for nine days. And they're like, so are you converted to nature? And I'm like, no, no interest in it at all. You know, I walked up the mountain and back down again. It made no sense to me. And um, I'd rather walk in a gym or, you know, you know, down the road with some friends. I just, nature doesn't appeal to me and my friends do. So I love that. That's sweet. I love the kind of like, you know, (laughs) particularly I suppose in the the Instagram world or online, we have this sort of puritanical thing where we think we we have to say that we love nature. But 
but I love that you're like, yes. actually, I fucking hate nature and walking with shit. Well, it was, <laughs> it was really interesting. Everyone on the trek who I think were nature lovers and trek lovers, they thought at the top of every mountain and every day they would convert me and they'd say, but see, Sarah, isn't it amazing? You're at the top of this mountain. And I, and I would look around and I would see these mountains and, you know, it was just like looking on my iPad or my computer, it's mountain. I've, I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But now I have to walk back down for seven kilometres and, and then, I don't understand that I've walked all the way up here to see this and now I have to go back down. And then you have to and do it again tomorrow. Like, yeah. And I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. I said, I don't understand. It gives me no joy. I said, I can see the, the beauty in it. I think it's beautiful, but I would find the same beauty if I looked at it on my computer. Fair and I enough. said, what I find beauty in is sitting around with my friends around a table and looking at them and talking to them. That's what gives me happiness. Looking at a mountain or a glacier or a waterfall, it gives me, it gives me absolutely nothing. Well, your job is all about people, uh, so that yeah. makes perfect sense. For people who've never heard of the charity before, can you tell us what it is and what's your role? Yeah, so Rafiki Mwema, uh, translated from Swahili to English, is a loyal friend, and it was started by a UK-based charity called Play Kenya. And Play Kenya is a therapeutic charity that 10 years ago started and used to go around to orphanages or women's prisons or children's homes and teach therapists or staff members there how to work with children who had been terribly abused to help them through the traumas of what they've suffered. Now, Play Kenya saw that there was no homes or no nowhere for abused girls who had been raped to go from the moment they tell the police I've been raped to the moment that they have to go to court. And sometimes those between those moments is three months. So in, in between that time, they were going to remand, which is kind of like a jail. And that, they could be from two years of age to 12 years of age. These children were going to remand centre before they would go to trial because there was nowhere that could take them because they were so badly abused. So Anne-Marie, who runs Play Kenya, said, I need to, to find a safe, I need to start a safe house for these girls to go into while they're, you know, going to prosecute these um, men or monsters. So she started a home and she called that home Rafiki Mwema. So within five days or something, she had 12 girls. Uh, fast forward a bit, about six months later, I, I've been friends with her because I've worked in Kenya for 12 years and she wrote to me because I used to build websites for her and she said, I'm going to have to shut the doors of Rafiki Mwema. I d can't do fundraising. You know, she's a therapist and that's what mm. she's wonderful at. And she said, I can't. I've got no money. I, she, she put all her life savings in. She, she lost everything and she's like, I'm going to have to shut the doors. And I knew what that meant. It meant these girls going back to the abusers and so on. So I started a fundraiser to raise some upfront money to keep it open immediately. But then, you know, looking into the future and a few drinks with friends, of course, I thought what's going to happen in the future after my money runs out for her? what's going to happen, you know, in the coming months. So that's when I decided to establish Rafiki Mema in mm. Australia. These days we have four houses. I call them four safe houses in Kenya, two girls' houses, two boys' houses for children that have suffered really terrible abuse. So boys who have come from the street and some of them have run away from the age of four. Girls that come to us are all girls that have been really horrifically raped and they've come to us from the police station or... Um, the children's department, and we take them from the moment of their rape and we take them through the hospital system if they need surgery and then we'll take them through the courts and, you know, sit with them and have, a, have an auntie or we call them a key worker with them to prosecute the person who raped them if we know who it is and if we don't know who it is, we'll hunt them down as well. 
Wow. We're still an institution, even though I think our houses are beautiful and wonderful. Ideally, the children go back into their families. So we have 110 children that have also left us and returned home. But we don't just let them return home. We check on them until they're 18 years old. So we've got a huge outreach program where we've got full-time staff checking on all of these children. We have like a roster system where we check on every child that has left us until they're 18 years old and then Mm. I still won't let it go. So I still make sure we check on them to make sure that they're safe and the abuser that was around or the horrible father that was beating the boys or whatever, we just make sure they're safe and they've got everything they need. So Mm. they're still our family even though they're not at home. And I imagine that it doesn't always work like that. Either the person who's being charged gets off or the family, the dynamics of the family mean that the child can't return how do you manage those situations well we've learned along the way you know we've had really big failures which has helped us learn um and we're never proud to admit these but I think we have to be truthful we're learning as we go and we're doing the very best we can we've had one girl who came with us she was one of the first girls and she went she came from a beautiful mother and father absolutely beautiful she was raped by a stranger from the family she was six when she came to us she returned home when she was like nearly eight and when she went home we then had an outreach program but it wasn't as rigorous we weren't checking now we check every two days then after it's okay every four days and so on and I think we would let them go home we would check in a week and then we would check every two weeks and we let it go one week when we let her home because she had a beautiful mother and father and we went back and her father raped her Oh, and because she, because she was used goods and that's exactly <gasps> what he said. She was used now. What, what's the point? So what she sees now and she's with us now as an older girl, she, what she sees now is that she came to us and then we sent her back and her father raped her. We didn't get her in time and then we brought her back to us. So it's the most horrendous thing that haunts us. You're only human. It's a it's a massive thing that you're tackling. It's yeah. incredible that you're even doing it full stop. And so, it doesn't work out in life yeah. either. Yeah. You know, it doesn't work no, out. No, that's right. It, and it, how else are you meant to learn for the next person? I mean, it's obviously horrendous that that's what has to happen. And we can say all the things in the world, like, yeah, nothing's ever happened to the children that have gone home, but we'll be the first to admit it because we'll be the first to take on... Um, the advice on how to fix it for next time. I really respect that. That's brilliant because you have to be truthful in these situations. And I guess and it's the code of silence, I think, which is the most damaging. Yes. If you're silent about it, you're implicit in it almost rather than working out the ways that you exactly. can change it. Exactly, and that's what we really... We really believe in, and some people tell me to shut up sometimes because I am a bit too honest, but I'm like, I've got nothing to hide and I'm only doing the right thing for these children. Mm. Um, You know, I'm really, really fighting for them. Seeing so much of the dark side of human nature, do you find that you are a trusting person or does it make you suspicious? This is pretty dark. I haven't liked most humans for a long, long time anyway. So, you know, Mm. now I've seen this side of the world as well. I'm like, oh, see... I knew I was right. Everyone sucks. The world's fucked. Yeah, Yeah, there we go. Adults are fucked and I love children and I can't trust anyone and that's probably my problem and probably something that helps me be as crazy and passionate as I am. Well, I was just going to say that sounds like not your problem. It sounds like your strength and it's not just obviously in Kenya. Oh, they just hide it here and in London Mm -hmm. better than they do. We've got famous police people here and famous, you know, whatever politicians over there doing exactly the same thing, but they've got the money and power to hide it. You're exactly right. How, How many of these cases actually go to trial? Oh, a lot. We've, we've got about 70 men to jail for life. Oh. <gasps> yeah, yeah, for life. Over what time period has that been? 
um, since Anne-Marie started, which was when my daughter was born, so 2011. That is incredible. And how many of these trials have you personally sat through? None. We wouldn't be allowed to and we wouldn't sit through any as a white person. Why is that? Um, just because it would could get corrupt and someone could bribe someone. They could, they would think that we are a charity with money. It, it could be a downfall for our girls okay, or for the other side. Like we just wouldn't put our face in it. We, you know, it's not. We trust our staff so much and we, we've we trained them and we just don't need to be there. And also I'd probably shoot them in the head. I just couldn't go. Yeah, there's that <laughs> yes. separation that you need to maintain. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I couldn't. I don't think I could. I've never, ever seen one of the abusers. Yeah. Um, I had a chance to go and see a grandmother that had done something and I had to pull out because I, I really, I don't think that I could sit there. And I mean, I'm not trying to be tough, but I really don't think like it's if someone touched my daughter, I, I would actually kill them. Like I, I can't sit there. I can't sit, you know, so I just have to separate myself because I get really, really emotional. Anne-Marie, who is that my partner in this, she actually has sat through, before she started Rafik and Wemma, she sat through um, a trial with one of our, who is our, now one of our big, big boys, um, and he was an eight-year-old boy, and he had been kidnapped with another boy and held for maybe four years um, in a cupboard, wherever, and raped by two men, and anyway, ended up going to court, and these two men were in the courthouse, so these eight-year-old boys, and th- they were allowed to t- um, uh, yell at these boys, and the boys had to say what they did to them and say, did they put you in the cupboard, did they rape you? five times a day did they do this and our boys who are the, are the most beautiful boys were so petrified they pissed themselves they shit themselves in court and marie just was looking at this revolting man screaming at him saying it didn't happen and then when our boy i won't say his name was saying what happened mm. this revolting man would was finding pleasure in what he was doing and he was smiling at him while he was saying it Jesus. and Anne marie said this I can never let this happen again. And when and this was oh, uh, maybe eight, eight or nine years ago, she w- watched this, and um, that's that's the day she dreamt of the video link in um, to be in Nakuru Court. And she said, "I can never let this happen to another one of our children." She said it was the most revolting thing she's ever seen. And amazingly, our boys sent they, those men to jail for life. They still yes. testified against them pissed themselves and you know everything and sold themselves but they still sent them to prison it was amazing but what happened in that courthouse has now damaged him forever of course he just can't he can't get past that now you know and all that he suffered it would have been amazing if he could do it without them but all that he'd suffered just that trauma you know re-traumatizing himself and that man laughing at him you know that's traumatic yeah could you tell us a bit more about the sponsorship program we've got all sorts of different sponsorship levels because we understand everyone's um money situations are different you can do anything from five dollars a month which i call give me five uh project <laughs> which the, it goes to our out which, which goes to our outreach program um which is checking on the kids that have left us till they're 18 years old so we've got uh seven or eight full-time staff members in outreach who work seven days a week who just visit each staff member visits one child a day who has left us so you think 110 kids um you know they're constantly doing that and then we also take our children who are living with us on home visits so even if the home we we don't take them back to their rapist but we take them back to their mum or their grandma wherever to and just to give them a sense of community um and we take them back there but we don't leave their side so that's a that's a huge um 
job role in itself. So that's $5 a month. And then you have child sponsorship because, you know, a lot of people like to have a connection to a child or they might have it like I've got an eight-year-old daughter so I would sign her up with an eight-year-old girl in our home so they could have that connection and you can kind of explain things to the kids. So that's $50 a month. Um, and then, you know, we're looking for corporate sponsors. And it's just a continuous slog for you, isn't it? Because you you work so hard. Uh, we were fascinated by the way that you engage so well with social media to really connect with people and to drum up support for the charity. And that's that's all your work. You've done incredibly. But you said you have a mixed relationship with social media, don't you? So can you sort of unpack that a bit? See, I, did, I don't know that I'm doing a good job on social media. I mean, I do everything for the charity. I am in charge of the fundraising, the accounting, the sponsorship, the emails, the reporting, the, you know, everything. It is me and then I do um, with drugs for a really hard you know, four or five hours solid. There we go. And then we get up. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but I – social media for me is kind of – I know it's a necessity, but but that's kind of the easy part of what, what I have to do because I'm so proud of these children and then sometimes I'm so sad for these children and I think all I do on social media is – and people – I've had so many people say – don't say that. Shut your mouth. You can't swear. You can't say that about the children. Don't put a photo of your daughter. Don't put that, you know, and I'm just like, you know what, you're not fucking doing anything to help me. I have to do what I want to do and how I think it's going to help these kids because I don't know what else to do. From the moment that I said I'm just going to do it how I want to do it and what what makes what what feels right for me. I know I'm I, I'm not doing anything wrong for this shit. I'm going to do it how I want to do it, and it seems to be working, you know. But I don't know that that's a good job. I do get a lot of comments and things, and we're getting great support. But I don't know that it's it's great or or not great. So it's exciting to hear that I do a good job. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely, and it's I mean you the way that you you share. I mean I like all the things that you're saying about the things that maybe people have critiqued you for, all the things Mm. that I actually really love about the way you engage with social media. You can see how emotionally invested and connected you personally are. And can you tell us about this incredible campaign that you did most recently, which raised 20,000 for a new video Mm. link? 22,000 so fast. Yeah, so this was the – so I spoke about one of our boys who testified in the main court and that's what gave Anne-Marie the dream for our first video link, um, which we did two years ago. So um, a couple of weeks ago our smallest baby, three years old, um, had to go to court to testify against her filthy father who Sorry, raped her and it was on her. three and, years and, old? Three years old, yes. Had He's our testify. smallest baby that we have at the moment. Against her dad, oh and he's God. the mo- the biggest. Mo- I haven't I haven't seen him, but my um manager said that he's the biggest man he's ever seen, like revolting. And all of his friends bailed him out of jail. And I'm like, right, we're going to send this prick to prison. So she had to. So she couldn't go to our main court where we've got the video link. So she, you know, if she could go to our main court, she could use the video link I've already raised money for. But but because the rape happened in another town, she has to go to that courthouse, which I understand, I suppose. And um, she, the first time she had to testify, um, the judge put all of these um, speeding fines and all these little things in front of her. She's three years old. We know if you have children how tired they get. And she was the last person to be seen at the end of the day and she was on the noise. So she was she was she was falling asleep and our manager said no way she's not testifying she's too tired 
So we took her home. And then the next time was this Friday a few weeks ago. And we said to the judge, she needs to be seen first. She's a baby. Um, please, can we, she testify first. And in Kenya, in the courthouses, the the rapists can question the children. So they can stand face to face. They can even be as close as nearly touching their face and say, no, that didn't happen. You're lying. And they can ask the kid questions. So imagine your father saying, that didn't happen. You know, what are you saying that happened in that bedroom? We were in that other bed. You know, they can question them and make them confused. I mean, three-year-olds oh. can't even hold a conversation properly. So no, and that's you know, what can happen. Lawyers and barristers and um, particularly the people yes. that we're close to are so skilled at making the most intelligent of people um, fumble yeah. over their words and confusion. And, you know, memory is a, is a subjective thing anyway. So the idea That's that right. parents... Imagine would, your father being able to yell at Manipulate them. you in that way So as she... Well. Um, Exactly. So she, he did that. She ran out of the courthouse screaming and crying and my managers reported it to me and I was so fucked off. I was so angry and I was crying and crying seeing that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was so angry and I'm like, it was Friday afternoon, I think, and I was so angry. So, of course, I started drinking and I'm like, right, what am I going to do? I'm gonna, I have to do something. So I went on social media and I put the report that he sent me on Instagram and I said, see, I don't know what to fucking do. I said, this is what's happening. I said, she's three years old. She can't go to this other courthouse. What am I meant to do? And so many people. I mean, I had, this was the biggest commented picture on Instagram ever, ever, ever. We had, I had a, over a 1,000 comments going, no fucking way. What can we do? Tell us what we can do. So overnight I thought, right, I'm going to get another video link. I'm going to get it in the courthouse. I made my managers go to the court judge and say, if we get the money, can we get this in before she goes to court next time, blah, 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 blah. So I woke up the next morning. And just said, right, here we go. I'm going to do this campaign. And I just put this um, like a kind of crowdfunding page up and just started promoting it on social media and, and going back to all these people that were saying, I'm so fucked off, tell me what I can do. I'm like, well, here you go. Here's a link. Give me $10 and I'll make a change, you know. And I kind of wrote to thousands and thousands of people on Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, of course not all of those people donated, you know, because I know a lot of people get angry and just say this or that. But the majority of people, they were saying, tell me what I can do to make this change. Like I know getting angry and I was saying to them, well, let's get angry. I mean, you're, you're so angry. So let me help you channel that anger into something else because I'm so angry right now. I don't even want to live. Like I don't know what to do. So let's put this anger into this campaign. And I stayed up for nearly 24 hours because I was so, so emotional until I think I went to sleep when it was about $14,000 and then... Um, I remember you posting and you were like, oh, I think I'm going to stay away for, awake for 24 hours and then you're like, fuck, I can't stay awake for 24 hours. What have I done? <laughs> yeah, just ignore that bit. No one really cares, right? So I'm just going to go to sleep. Oh, <laughs> and you woke up. anyone even watching? Hello? <laughs> and you woke up and, and what did you see? Um, so I couldn't open my phone. I was so emotional. I was so dead. They kind of really drain me when I do these things. And then my friend texts me and said, "You." I actually checked the total and it was like uh, 16,000. So I'm like, okay, we're almost there. And I was feeling really exhausted and really like, fuck, it's not going to happen. And, and none of the ambassadors had shared it yet. I'm like, oh, God, do I write? Do I tell them to do it? And then my friend wrote and said, you did it. And I said, no, I didn't. It's not done yet. And she said, no, check. And then I refreshed it and someone had an Instagram follower actually. She sent me a message and it went to my others and I checked it and, you know, just some 
lovely lady who's been following me on Instagram donated over four grand to get me over the total. Whoa. That yeah. is amazing. And I wrote to her and I sent her a video of me sobbing on the bed. Oh. Like, <laughs> and this is like what we mean. It's oh, yeah. amazing that the power of social media can make something like that happen. Like mm. that's fucking cool. That yeah. You can share your so yeah, really cool. by something so awful that's happened and you're able to share that instantaneously and make a change. That's yes. incredible. And then, yeah. so what happened to the girl then? Did she, with the video link installed and, and was she able to testify via video link? Has that happened? So she was due to testify against again on the 9th of February, mm-hmm. which has been and gone. And it wasn't because we only got it maybe four days before, mm-hmm. you know, got the video link started a few days before then. So we were able to postpone her um, court date until the video link is done, which will be in about a week. Oh, my Amazing. goodness. Um, so, yeah, it's nearly set up and the judge was so thrilled and so excited about this that he said he's going to make, like he will guarantee that this little girl can use this video link all the time, oh. no matter what court hearing, and she'll never have to face him again, which is wonderful. But what he said was he'll make sure that any cases similar of, you know, the child or the woman feeling threatened will always use this safe room and this video link and they'll never have to face them again. Well, congratulations because that's yeah. a fucking massive feat. Yeah, like that's a, that's amazing. And yeah. you can just hear, you know, obviously it brings tears to your eyes and, and Daisy and I are sitting here with tears in our eyes too listening mm-hmm. to you speak, but you can see that it's so close to the surface for you. You mm. know, this doesn't sound like someone who hates people. This sounds like someone who really loves people <laughs> and who's just fucking angry with some children. people yeah. <laughs> little people um so and can you tell us one exactly. of the i'm angry at the darkness yeah Absolutely. one of the things that you've engaged with so well is uh ambassadors and can you tell us about some of your ambassadors and how you've come into relationship with them when i promote rafiki when i'm you know at night when i'm chasing money every month i write to every person i can think of you know i've written to five thousand famous people um surprisingly enough i've never written to constance hall or celeste barber um who are now our biggest ambassadors um constance hall one of our sponsors um of our little girls years ago wrote to Constance Hall and on Facebook and just said, oh, Constance, look at these. She sponsored two of our girls and she said, look at these queens I sponsor in Kenya. These Sarah does such a great job. I mean, look at, look at them. And it was a video that I'd sent her. And mm-hmm. Con was just online at that moment and saw the video and luckily read it and wrote straight back to Jess and said, great, I love it. This is what I want to use my platform for. Get Sarah to write to me and tell me what we can do. Con said she used to get 500 messages a day and she didn't open them all at all. So it was just meant to be and she opened it and she, we connected and then there was nothing for months and I just kept kept going, kept writing to her, kept engaging, kept sending her. Kept my, I mean, she's like, you're so fucking annoying, Sarah. You made me fall in love with those kids. And I just kept annoying her because I'm like, I know you're going to love them. I know you're going to help me. I know you're going to do it. You know, and then then one day she's like, right, we're ready. Let's do it. Let's do the Queen's Castle because I'd spoken about what I wanted from her and then like there's nothing for three months and then she's like can we do it now I'm ready to launch it now like in 10 minutes and I'm like yep I can do it now so I just went and set up this campaign and and then off we went to 200,000 and Celeste Barber came through um Constance um one of our fundraisers we did when we um when we celebrated con after the Queen's Castle um money 
uh, we had a fundraiser in Byron Bay and Celeste got in touch and I said, why don't you come along to Byron? And I got drunk with her and I'm really funny when I'm drunk and she fell in love and, and then I stalked her too and she was like, you are really annoying. Right, I'll be an ambassador. So if that's oh, what I do. Brilliant. I'm sure if we ask <laughs> those women their, their version, I don't think they'd use the word annoying about you. Something. Oh, they me. would. I guarantee <laughs> it. I guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's just what's been so lovely for us to observe is, is just engaging with what can be sometimes a, a really superficial or sometimes even cruel kind of platforms or, or, or platforms that I suppose tr- typically people would, would think push people apart you know or, or take yes. the hu- don't humanize people but what you yes. what we're trying to bring light to is actually that sometimes we can use it to to do just that to humanize and to connect and 20 years ago or 10 years ago you you wouldn't have had those resources so I mean 10 or 12 years ago I ran an orphanage in the same town so I did the same thing kind of that I'm doing now but there was no social media or you know I think Facebook was just starting or something yeah so it is absolutely Facebook and media and of course newsletters and all of that that has made Rafiq and Wera successful compared to you know my past work I could not have reached as many people and connected to as many people and been able to have this platform mm. and seek like I do like it, it just wouldn't be accepted which is what seems to be working for me now 10 years ago it didn't it couldn't have happened mm. as you said you know you're you you deal with a lot of dark stuff and I'm wondering how you manage that and if there's such thing as a balance and if there is how how you achieve it. My girlfriend who came over tonight was having a drink with me and she said, you're getting interviewed? And I said, yeah. And she said, can I see? Because she's in marketing. And I said, they sent me some questions, but I haven't looked at them yet because it just makes me nervous. And she said, you have to look at them. So she looked at them and I, and then we read it together and I said, I don't. I don't, I don't have a sense of, I mean, I don't have any balance, do I? And they all laughed and they said, no, you don't. But then we thought about it and I do. I mean, I pretend, and I don't pretend, I don't really like the world and I do stay, I hide in my house and I have a group of friends that I, I will only associate with, you know, a few particular people. And as we were talking tonight, I guess it's because I reserve my energy for a few particular people who know exactly what I'm like and sometimes all I will do is rave about Rafiki and I can't do small talk and they know that and if I'm on a Rafiki rant, they would just listen to me and they won't try and put any small talk in there and I, I often don't leave my house so everyone comes over here and I, I guess that's how I have a balance. It's not a very healthy balance. I'm very aware of that but that's what I have to do at the moment to continue mm. what I do. I don't really... Um, I don't socialise much and if I do socialise, like I said, it's people that come over here and, and I only accept people into my nightclub that I love. And um, I rest a lot and I I am, I am try to have a lot of alone time because because I think that's what you need. When and you, you, do what you, you know do. what works for you and it's amazing that you have a circle of friends that do come to you when you need it, you know, like that's so special. Mm. Yes, and, and they do and they don't worry when I'm like in a, a mood where, and I'll say, look, you guys have to leave, I'm not coping. <laughs> and they won't judge or say, you right, what's going on? Yeah. You know, we're just really upfront and really honest and I say I'm just, I'm in a lot of pain or I'm just really sad tonight or I'm just so fucked off because I need to get this video link in or whatever and it's just yeah. it is what it is and I, what I say is what I say and, and that's all that Well, it sounds is. like you know your boundaries and your friends respect them and that's 
that's cool. Yeah, so that, I guess, so I thought I had no boundaries, but I think I had a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, I, I guess when you're having a drink and a wine and and um, someone's throwing their head back laughing and then some thought comes into your head about some child and it's like, you know, you're trying to battle through those two worlds and you must get triggered by many things throughout your day. Yeah, really triggered. And I think that's why I have really specific friends who um, I know who I can be with where that won't happen like I've been to parties before where you know we're sitting talking around and everyone's talking and just having a a great old time which is absolutely fine and then I feel guilty that I can't enjoy the time with them and then I hate them and then I feel guilty for that but then they'll say something which will trigger something and then I'll sit there and cry and look like an absolute lunatic and then I'll have to leave you know what I mean so Mm. I try to keep myself away from places like that and I have my really specific friends who if I do start crying just go you right Sarah you need to go home you know and it's just they're really like I'm talking six friends I've got six people that can accept what I what I do if if they understand you that's who you keep close like uh, there's no point in having the superficial friends that don't understand you why yeah, would you have them that's right and then it's not that they're superficial and they're not a bad, not bad people but how can I explain my brain to someone in yeah. one night around a party table yeah. that's so you true you know and it's and you don't owe that to anyone either you know no and I don't and they they shouldn't have to put up with me crying or yelling at them for complaining because they couldn't afford their $500 leather bag either you know what I mean that's not their fault that I'm so fucked in the head and I shouldn't be so angry that they're so happy you're a hero Sarah I mean you've got the trauma of hundreds and hundreds of babies on the weight of your shoulders on the weight of your shoulders and you know not just that but you're running a business like you know you're you're looking after so many different staff members to babies like running a business in and of itself is a stressful thing let alone when people's lives are actually on the line you're doing so many things and you're doing it most of the time from a different country I don't think you're fucked in the head at all I think you're amazing (laughs) um and uh, do you just have one daughter is it or do you have any kids yeah yeah. no an eight-year-old daughter how is it having to leave her to look after other kids does she help in terms of keeping that balance or or seeing the the lighter side Uh, it's really weird I think I wonder if she helps me or I wonder if it makes it more traumatic for me not that it's about me but then I think am I helping her and I'm or am I making her more traumatized because she sees me working seven days a week day and night for all of these children that she's never met but she knows them all as her brothers and sisters mummy does Rafiki and then mummy cries and then mummy goes to bed and then mummy gets all these boxes of presents for all these other children but not me and then I leave her you know it's really I find it really stressful if it's helping her and not helping her Mm. but everyone she never ever tells me that she loves it every single friend of mine who looks after her or helps me with her when I'm gone says that all she talks about is me and Rafiki and how wonderful she thinks it is and how proud she is that you know mummy's helping these kids and and so on but I look at her and I think it probably gives me more drive to help these kids because I just look at LaVista and think there's no reason it shouldn't be her. Yeah. Mm. And just because they're, they're not, I didn't give birth to them, why shouldn't I help them? She, she probably gives me one more passion and drive. Passion and drive is certainly two things that you have. Um, and we're, we're just truly blown away by the work that you do. The layers mm. of emotion and humanity you experience yes. on a daily basis, oh. pe- normal people don't experience. Huge. It's nuts. Yeah. What led you into this career path you know did you expect to be doing this long story short um I had the car accident they spoke about 12 
years ago and I had that a week after I left Kenya for the first time when I went to visit an orphanage over there. I had a car accident in the United States. I returned home to Australia to recover and I was in bed for 12 months. Fuck. Yeah, it was, and my friend had bought me a computer when I was in the States and I taught myself web design when I was in bed recovering and then I started a web design business when I fell pregnant and I did free web design for charities and so I was doing web design for Anne-Marie who ran Play Kenya and that's how we had that connection again and I had that connection to the children. So did I think I would be working with, safe houses in Kenya I don't know but my mum has said from you know the moment that I could talk that I spoke about Africa um, my whole life so she she knew that I was always going to be drawn to Africa she just didn't know where or when and you know she's she she, she has said it would always happen I just didn't know it would be this well thank you so much for talking to us Sarah it's been a real honor um, we're sad to wrap things up yeah no worries Thank you for talking to me of and course. listening to me ramble. Oh, it wasn't ramble. You, you were amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time tonight. I cannot express to you how bold over we are by your commitment and passion. Um, and oh. yeah, just in genuine, genuine awe. Seriously, it's bananas. Good. Well, tonight's the night I start stalking you. So watch out. <laughs> We should be so lucky. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Sarah. Have a good night. Have a few few beers. Get a good four hours. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting. I'm looking for it five hours tonight. I think. Fuck yeah, you're you're off the chain, you're Sarah. Crazy. <laughs> um, I mean, it's Friday night after all. Oh, it is. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. You're brilliant. Okay. See you later. <laughs> thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Harness. It would really help us if you could like, review, share, subscribe, follow, all that magical stuff you know what to do. One more thing. We are proud friends of Rafiki Mwema and the Carly Ryan Foundation. Both charities work tirelessly to help protect young people from harm and suffering. Support us by following the work of these amazing charities and, of course, each of the incredible guests we've had on the show. We'll include links in the show notes. Thanks for listening.